Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 113 of Yukon 360, which is, of course, the only podcast on Earth that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Um, coming to you from beautiful stores, Connecticut. I'm Tom Breen, and joining me as always is my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing great. It's fall is finally in full swing. It is. The men's and women's basketball team had first night recently. Yes. So, yeah, it's starting to feel back, like starting to feel like fall. Yeah. yeah. Got their rings, their exciting rings. They got their rings. A lot of exciting stuff happening on campus. Always. You've got some big news. There is big news, which long time for this to be released because we were waiting on some state bureaucracy to happen. <laughs> Little pushers. <laughs> but the School of Nursing just received the largest gift in university history for any purpose, $40 million from Elizabeth DeLuca, class of 1969, School of Nursing. It is going to provide scholarships and programmatic support for a dynamic nursing education that includes patient-centered practice, interdisciplinary research, and technology-based innovations. And the big news as part of this gift is that it's going to support the construction of a new school of nursing facility on campus. It'll be over, I believe, by like the child labs near South Campus. So the school of nursing has been in their current building for quite a while. They have a new wing, but they need some new state-of-the-art stuff to really address that um, state and nationwide nursing shortage. And Ms. DeLuca's gift is going to really help out with that. That's awesome. It's very cool. It's very big news. That's a huge gift. It is, yeah. It is a really huge gift. Yeah, we've gotten some big gifts in our time, but that's that's a really big one. Yeah, and it's for such a good thing, too. It is. It's awesome. The School of Nursing is great, and, you know, everybody needs nurses. Not that there's ever a bad reason to give money to UConn. True. But this is a really good one. It is. Very cool. But, you know, we've been we've been busy here as well. We've been doing a lot of stuff this fall, a lot of, a lot of exciting things happening. Yeah. But we took some time, and this is actually kind of a, a tie-in with the magazine. It is. Yeah. We took some time to talk to somebody who has expertise in a lot of different areas. But in, in this case, and one in particular, I think listeners will be very interested to learn more about. Who are we going to meet today, Julie? Yeah, this is one of my favorite UConn faculty members who I feel like we've gone to for various things over the years because he's just such a good guy. But as you said, something of pretty wide interest that we're going to be talking about today. So this year, 2023, is widely acknowledged as the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. In 1973, there was a Bronx party where DJ Cool Herc mixed two records using his merry-go-round technique, and it was credited with the birth of the genre. Here at UConn, we have a resident expert in what Vice President Kamala Harris recently called the ultimate American art form. History professor Jeffrey Ogbar is the director of the Center for the Study of Popular Music and the author of the award-winning book, Hip Hop Revolution, The Culture and Politics of Rap. In 1999, Professor Ogbar introduced his popular course, Hip Hop, Politics, and Youth Culture in America, which he is still teaching. And it may, in fact, be the longest continuously taught hip hop class in the country. And when it was uh, first introduced, it was widely covered in national magazines like The Source and lots of other places. And it was also featured on this very podcast a few years ago and in Yukon Magazine in recent years. I am always so excited to talk to Professor Ogbar, who is both a lifelong fan of and an expert on the wildly popular genre and subculture of hip-hop. Welcome to Yukon 360. Yay. Thank you very much, Julie, Tom. Absolute pleasure to be here. We're so happy to have you here. I've talked to you a few times about this, but I know you kind of came of age with hip-hop. You talk about how you were born around the same time as some of the greats that we know now, and you've been a fan for much of your life. And I was thinking about myself when I came to UConn. I wanted to be a music journalist because I've always been a big fan of music. But how did you figure out that you could study it as a scholar, that you could actually become an expert on this topic as a historian? For listeners to have a sense of where I fit in the hip-hop generation, I was born the same year as Diddy, Sean, Diddy, Love, Puff Daddy, Combs, <laughs> <laughs> man known of many names, and Jay-Z and Ice Cube. So, in fact, Ice Cube and I are within the same month. We're like a few days apart, and he also is from Los Angeles, and I know people who know him from high school. I've never met Ice Cube before, although Diddy has a very funny story among my many hip-hop icons and folks I've met. So I, I did briefly meet him, and he, he publicly humiliated me. But it's a funny story, and I, I deserve the story. I've only told that publicly once, but at UConn for Paris Weekend, in fact. And so it was. I got a lot of laughter from the crowd. So oh, boy. Everyone enjoyed the Diddy Diss story. Maybe we'll revisit that one. <laughs> and so that's, and that's one year after. So I'm one year younger than Will Smith and LL Cool J and a couple years older than Tupac and Eminem. Okay. So it kind of gives you an idea where I fit in this, this generation. And, of course, 
I was a kid when hip hop was coming out. I grew up in Los Angeles, and the art form, which is composed of four elements that we call it: breakdancing, emceeing or rapping, DJing. Some people call it turntablism, and then the fourth element is the graffiti artist. Other people have tried to add to the the elements, but I'm I'm a traditionalist when it comes to this because I explained that all four elements are unique to hip hop. Like people say, knowledge, but knowledge is been around before and after hip-hop. Breakdancing is unique to hip-hop, mm. right? The rapping as we have it with the intertextual allusions, the puns, the similes, the complicated wordplay off the dome, the rhyming schemes. I mean, this is something unique to hip-hop. Even in genres of music, you find some people scatting and that kind of thing. But this is not rapping. It's something very distinct. And so when you think about the DJ, like backspinning, cutting, mix fading, all these different things, these techniques did not exist before hip-hop. And the hip-hop style graffiti, graffiti's been around forever since humans have been writing. We find graffiti in the ancient temples in Africa and in Egypt, and we do not have a a certain aesthetic that we identify as hip-hop style graffiti until the 1970s. All these things are unique to hip-hop. So when people say, well, knowledge or fashion or... (laughs) You know, knowing politics, all that kind of stuff is not unique to hip hop. So the four elements, when it came to Los Angeles, I was actually a teenager because there were movies that came out that brought all four elements. Because if you were just growing up outside the New York metro area, you might be unaware of breakdancing because until it was promoted in movies. You had no idea that it even mm-hmm. existed. And graffiti art itself was something else. And we had graffiti in Los Angeles, gang-based graffiti, or just random guys writing on walls, but that was not the hip-hop style graffiti. So when Breaking, Breaking 2, Beat Street, Crush Groove, when these movies came out, I was probably 13, 14, 15, around those days. I finally got a chance to see all four elements of hip-hop. I fell in love with it. I talk about the swagger, the coolness of the kids that we saw in these movies. And then I never thought that it could be intellectually engaged. I suspect that everyone who loved hip-hop in its earliest stages, they loved what it was and didn't quite think about the reach that hip-hop would have in subsequent generations. I don't think anyone thought that it would be a cultural juggernaut, that, that it would more than any genre of music in the history of humanity would ever have this imprint on the planet, right? I don't think anyone thought that there would be folks in the rural pockets of South America, Africa, Asia, Europe rapping, right, in their own languages. I don't think they thought that people would be breakdancing. And that was something that we just thought was cool. It was for us. When it came to graduate school, I was a history major in undergrad. I was working on my PhD in history in grad school. And I just was a fan like everyone else. I gave a talk one time when I was writing my dissertation at St. Lawrence University. I was finishing my PhD at Indiana University, but at a pre-doctoral fellowship at St. Lawrence. And I gave a lecture one day that was modeled after a lecture that I heard in undergrad about how to best appreciate music and the musical artists understand the historical moment that gave inspiration to those lyrics and to that particular artist. And I gave a talk that one of the students loved, and she thought I should expand that talk for a larger group at the campus. I gave this talk, and I talked about the cultural wars and how hip-hop had engaged these cultural wars with such sublime sagacity and insight. And there was a professor there who was impressed and said, Jeffrey, that, that was a really cool talk. Why don't you consider writing an article and publishing it in this journal? And I did, and the article came out in 1999 in the Journal of Black Studies, and it became, at one point, the second most cited article in the journal one year, and it would just spread like wildfire, and became my one-hit wonder in academia, (laughs) and that's how I became a a scholar of hip-hop. It's been nice to see the 50th anniversary, there's sort of a lot of retrospectives, places like the New York Times and things, but on Twitter or X or whatever it is now, uh, Vernon Reed, the great guitar player for the band Living Color, was talking recently about how he knew hip-hop was going to be a revolution because of the way that people reacted against it, even people who were sort of not like stodgy establishment figures. And he had this video of Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead in the late 80s talking about how like technically hip-hop wasn't really music. And I know there was that kind of attitude for a while, actually. You know, when when the Grammys first had a hip-hop category, they didn't televise the award. When you were starting your career as a scholar, I think that attitude was starting to change. But did you encounter some of that? I did. I react that way because I was apparently uh, just naive and had no sense that that sentiment existed until in 2002, I was on a panel 
because of my one hit one article. I got some attention. I was uh, giving talks around the country. I was on a panel in Dartmouth mm. in Hanover, New Hampshire, and I was on the Amtrak train because Dartmouth is Hanover is so remote. I was on this train coming back to uh, Connecticut, and as one might imagine, there are not a whole bunch of black folks on the Amtrak train in upper New England, and I saw a number of people who were part of a band. It turns out that one of the band members and I struck up a conversation, and they were part of this, I don't want to say the name because of band leaders, but this is 21 years ago now. But there's this New York-based band, and the guy who ran the band was so nice. And the relatively young guy met me, asked me what was going on. I said, well, I'm just give this talk on hip-hop. He, t- he said that I used to be part of the live band that when early hip-hop artists in New York City performed, they didn't have a sample machine yet. So mm-hmm. they actually would recreate the exact music from the <laughs> albums that they sampled at parties. So when they did Sheik's Good Times, they just had a real live band, just re- reproduced it. And he used to be that guy who played real instrumentals. And he said, oh, this is so fascinating. He was like, you know, there's something on hip-hop and academia. This is crazy. I want you to meet our band leader. And I met this guy who was an older African-American gentleman who was who was young enough to know Duke Ellington. He knew uh, Miles Davis, Coltrane. He knew all these guys. He was he was a tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. He was an older man who was, in 2002, had been the tail end of the, Har- of the Harlem Renaissance and knew all these people, and he was such a nice guy. And he was so gracious, and he had me sit down next to him. And he asked me what I was doing, and I told him I was a professor, and he was still very nice. I told him what I was teaching, and he was still very nice. And I talked about hip-hop, and he slowly started to become less nice. <laughs> and then I said, uh, I said, you know, there's so much. I was just so eager to talk to him. I said, you know, there's there's so many similarities between hip-hop and jazz. And he just all of a sudden changed. And he was like, no, no, jazz and hip-hop are they have mm. nothing. They're not similar. Wow. I said, well, you know, he said, no, he said, these people can't read music. <gasps> I remember he said, you, they cannot read music. This is not real. This is not huh. to be considered in the same breath. So I said, well, you know, I don't want to get in a debate with this guy because he's my elder. Yes. I had yeah. yeah. respect for him and everything. But I said, I said, you know, Robert Johnson, you know, who many people see as a, if there's a proto rock and roll person, the first person, this is guy from rural Mississippi who in the 1920s was playing what became sort of a, a fancy form of blues music that would inspire the first generation of rockers. I'm not sure that Robert Johnson or many people who played juke joints read music in the same way, right? I, I think most of Humans through history have made music without <laughs> reading music, but I wouldn't say that's not music. And he, I could tell that he was grossly offended. I retreated from having a debate with him, but that was the very first time that I saw someone who was a musician who had such disdain for for hip hop. And that was that was the first of many. And I'll, I'll stop with all the, the stories, but he was the first time. That was no two. To your point, other people are on record saying this from different genres, you know, different racial backgrounds. So it's not solely, you know, to be understood. It's just what happens. And I think that that, that the guy from Living Color is right of the money and that uh, if you if you go through history and look at ragtime, you look at how people attack ragtime. And if you look at how people attack jazz music, which is ironic that this guy would say this, that people argue that jazz music set outside the confines of what's traditionally understood as music. People said the same thing, of course, about rock and roll. And then even the subgenres of jazz, when bebop came about, you had people who were critical of bebop, hard bop, you know, acid jazz. And so there's a long tradition of people sort of suffering from historical amnesia using the same exact rhetorical devices to disparage the new music coming about. And it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in hearing a little bit. Can you just take us through a little bit? It's obviously still pretty young, but 50 years is a big thing, and a lot has changed. There are all these subgenres of hip-hop, too. What are some of those big inflection points in how hip-hop has evolved to where it is today? To put this in context, 50 years, you're right on the money, Julia. So it's a pretty substantial swath of time. And if you go over the course of the last 120 years, let's go back 130 years. You have what is arguably the first popular form of music in the United States, you have ragtime, which doesn't last as the dominant form of music for more than a generation. It's supplanted by jazz. So in the 1920s, we even call this the jazz age. It was mm-hmm. so popular. And you have a good generation where jazz music is wildly popular. And then you have different types of jazz to emerge. You have big band, you have swing, you have bebop in the 1940s and the 50s. 
you have this sort of cool bop, and you get this sort of experimental stuff in the 60s, but jazz really falls off in terms of its commercial commercial penetration as a dominant form of music after World War II. And then you have it supplanted by race music, which becomes rock and roll, and rock and roll is big. You have from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and different types of genres of rock and roll, subgenres as well, right? Everything from, you know, one might even argue that, that folk into, like, heavy metal, right? Mm-hmm. You have R&B, which is huge, 50s, 60s, 70s, and remains dominant and remains really big. But when hip-hop comes around in 1970s into the 1980s, I remember writing my book in the early 2000s, and everyone sort of anticipated and wondered what the new genre of music would be. What would be that new genre to supplant hip-hop, right? But here we are, and, and hip-hop remains, there hasn't been nothing to supplant it. I mean, they're like pop music, which has been around, and which is sort of much more nebulous, right? And even how we define pop, yeah, is, is I'll go back, let's look at Drake, right? Drake outsells Dua Lipa, is he any less pop than she is? Is Beyonce pop? You know, we, we think of Taylor Swift as sort of quintessentially pop, but it's a much more nebulous term. But in terms of genres, 50 years and being dominant from the late 80s up like this and being one of the the top three genres of music from the early 1990s up is a pretty big record to hold on to. There have been subgenres of hip-hop like there have been subgenres of other forms of music. And I think that if you talk to people my generation – you get the typical refrain that you get from old fogies who are like, ah, about this, this stuff is trash. And so, yeah, I mean, people say this is trash. And I am guilty of saying this is trash. And I, I try not to be that dude, but I cannot help myself. I don't know what it comes to like, age. Once there you are like ARP studies part. that you kind of stop getting into music after <laughs> yeah, your 20s exactly. or something. It's like. Yeah, they say that. And so. You do, I mean, but for me, I try, to, I try to be dispassionate. And anyone who knows me, I always talk about this. I talk about being dispassionate about the data and the evidence before us, right? Even if it's not the conclusion you're looking for, the, the science is there. So I look at the preponderance of certain themes in hip-hop and the absence of certain themes mm-hmm. that we used to have. And that, I think, is a scientific measurement. Like, people talk about mumble rap and that kind of thing. And so someone might say that 21 Savage or Future, that these more recent MCs, they might talk about some anti-social issues and glorify things, but they are creative with their wordplay. They have kind of creative similes, puns, intertextual allusions, all the sorts of things. We typically measure uh, a, a gifted MC, a talented MC. Might not measure up to, we might see with Kendrick Lamar or Eminem, but they are way better than most folks. So you do have that. And then you have some production value, which I always think you could separate from the lyrics. And some people have issues with that. So I try not to just be only about the genre and a sort of blank slate, sort of a wide sort of sweep of the hand to say all of it is trash. Kendrick Lamar is someone I I love. In fact, of all the MCs to ever bless a mic, not only is he in my top five, he's my number one, Mm. right? And he is someone who came out in the late 2000s. Mm -hmm. People my age and my generation, again, for your listeners, I gave some context to when I was born. But Typically, people from my generation resort to Biggie and Pac and Jay-Z. And if you're from New York, they'll be like Cool G Rap and Big Daddy Kane and stuff like that, right? And people from the West Coast might throw in uh, Ice Cube. Southerners would do those, and then they'll throw in, like, um, Scarface. And rightfully so, Andre 3000, Mm -hmm. who would be in my top five, Mm -hmm. too, from Outkast. You, you, you kind of touched on, on themes, different lyrical themes. And I remember uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy once, maybe it was a Washington Post reporter, asked him, is your ambition to become black punk rock? And he said, no, our ambition is to become the black CNN, right? Hmm. That they wanted to convey a lot of information and to, to really like bring into the center of the culture themes that had not been on the radio, th- things that people had not talked about. How did that change? Because in the beginning, hip-hop was not quite so socially conscious. Am I right about that? Yeah, you're right on the money. I think a lot of times people think of early hip-hop as being socially conscious and addressing issues. When they did, it was very rare. So you have in 1982, The Message, Grandmaster Flash, and Furious Five. And those lyrics were written by 
someone who was not a rapper. Dookie Booty or something? I know that was a horrible name. I know there's people listening. Are you like, wouldn't have been name. able to predict yeah. that a professor <laughs> would come in and say that on the mic. And maybe his name was something else, but it's something similar to that. And <laughs> But this guy who wrote the lyrics for The Message was not a rapper, and he gave the lyrics to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and they were reluctantly decided to do it. And it talked about social travails of the city and that kind of thing. And the video is very powerful, too, because it addresses policing, poverty, uh, social services, all sorts of things that will become more common in the 1980s, late 80s and early 90s. But I tell people often, I I ask my students, I say, um, I love 1980s music. I grew up, I was in high school and middle school, we call junior high out in LA. And I asked my students, I said, uh, give us some black artists. And They'll throw out, you know, Patti LaBelle and New Edition and Whitney Houston and Anita Baker and all these people whom I love. But I'll say, now, what were the social conditions of black communities in the 1980s with Reaganism, with unemployment, with the rise of crack, with violence, with declining social services? And how many people talked about those things? And there were academics, there were social scientists who in the late 1980s started to talk about who were studying these various forces and inner cities. They were looking at unemployment. There were sociologists like William Julius Wilson from the University of Chicago who then moved to Harvard who talked about the declining significance of race and the loss of jobs and entrenched political, economic, social isolation in these communities. But these are our ivory tower academics with lit, a litany of data points looking at all these things. And they were starting to talk about policing, but it was hip-hop who on a massive scale exposed people to these things up close in this sort of black CNN that Chuck D referred to. But when Public Enemy comes out, the album, this sublime album, uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back in 1988. I mean, they talked about the drug trade. They talked about policing. They talked about uh, mass incarceration. They, lo- they looked at so many different forces with such sophistication. It was remarkable that these people, and which is also kind of important now at my age to look back, um, these people were in their 20s. They were in their early 20s. Some were teenagers. I mean, Ice Cube and NWA, they were coming out, and dude was a teenager writing, you know, F the police and, and talking about these things. So Ice Cube came out with America's um, Most Wanted and Death Certificate. He's 20 years old, like tw- 21. And they're having platinum albums and creating their own companies and talking about these things with such, like, bravado. And even Tupac, when he comes out as a teenager and then as, as a 20-year-old, he's talking about these complex issues. And they have a certain level of temerity, of courage, and bravado, again, that you just do not see in any genre of music uh, with that level of commercial penetration. You have some politically conscious lyrics in punk rock bands. You're like Dan Kennedy's, Black Flag. You have these folks who are really in the margins. Their their videos are not on MTV. They don't have, like there's UMCV Raps Mm -hmm. and Rap City on BET. And they become the most popular shows. The show dedicated to punk rock has no commercial penetration in the scale that hip-hop does. Like, Black Flag is not selling out arenas. Right. right? So you have these small venues, and you have 100,000 people buying an album. But in terms of commercial penetration, with this level of political commentary, it is really unique to hip-hop. And, again, they were ahead of academia. They were ahead of policymakers. They were ahead of politicians. They were addressing these things long before these things even come into our parlance. Mm. What do you think about... so? We talked a little bit before about, you know, certain people clutching their pearls with the hip-hop. And when you talk about, like, Public Enemy and what they were singing about, rapping about, it's so it's almost, like, noble to me, like, that they were out here with this bravado talking about these things that were happening. And obviously certain people don't want to hear about that. But what do you think the rise of the more gangster rap style did to kind of the acceptance, I guess, of hip-hop as a whole? Does that make sense? Is that a, is that a question? That, that it, did I articulate that at all? No, I, I think I know where you're getting to. And I, I, I point people to the pivotal years of 1988 to 1989. And I would say that there's no two-year block in the course of it might sound a bit hyperbolic to say in the course of American popular music, but I'll go on the ledge and say it anyway, right? So, <laughs> but certainly for hip-hop, is concerned. But there's probably no point in the history of, of hip-hop for sure that two years matter as much as 88, 89. So in 1988 and 89, you have the, the most important marketing structure for hip-hop deciding to have hip-hop videos and have a dedicated show to it. So you have UMCV Raps. BET has Rap City, and those two become, as I mentioned before, super popular, highest ratings. You also have 
the Source magazine coming out, that you have the first magazine completely dedicated to hip-hop on a national scale. And when, when the Source comes out, the Source makes a point not to have advertisements with alcohol or cigarettes. They have no tobacco or advertisement, which is important, and it has a, it's a very strong political statement. that they're, they're dedicated to a community that has been targeted by mm-hmm. these insalubrious forces for generations, and we choose not to partake in that. So it's a political statement about black life, black health, and they also employ, and it's actually founded by two white guys, right? They employ all these young African-American and Latino male and female writers. So they have these, these journalists who cut their teeth on a national magazine that comes out every month, well done, well executed, and nationally people are reading about hip-hop artists all across the United States with a political lean. These are young people in their 20s coming out of college with these degrees, talking about Blood Diamonds, Civil War, Apartheid in South Africa. They had Malcolm X on the cover, they had Mike Tyson on the cover. So although it was centered on hip-hop, they actually were tuned in to the zeitgeist and the politics of the generation. And then finally, in, uh, in that same period, we have the uh, Music Academy, the Grammys, recognizes rap music with its own category. But they think of it as a passing fad. They think it's not going to be that important. And they decide to not air the award in the TV segment. And then it would be like at lunchtime or something, kind of like with Mexican polka music. They're like, oh, just have, out there and have these dudes. But this is also testimony to the character of rappers that they, because they were rap and they were hip-hop, they are irreverent. And they were like, we don't need you, and we refuse to even show up at the Grammys, and we will have our own party somewhere else, and we'll celebrate ourselves because we don't need you. And to quote Jay-Z, he said that we didn't go to the mainstream, the mainstream came to us. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. before he made that comment, Run DMC famously has a video, a King of Rock, and the video has him walking into the Rock and Roll Museum, which is sort of a precursor to Rock mm-hmm. and Roll uh, Hall of Fame. But And there's a security guard there, and as Run DMC come up in the video to the security guard, he's like, you don't belong here. This is a rock and roll museum. Ha ha. He starts laughing, (laughs) sinister laugh at Run DMC. (laughs) But Run DMC, true to their hip-hop bona fides, they move the guy to the side and walk in anyway and declare themselves to be the king of rock. I am the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs will call me sire. And so they go on this whole thing. It's a wonderful video. It's very dismissive of, of rock and roll iconography and icons from... Michael uh, Jackson to uh, Elton John and the Beatles. So I think that hip-hop in this period accelerates its penetration to the mainstream. And finally, to answer your question, I know if I'm going all the way around <laughs> okay. here, but I have not forgotten it. So thank you. It's a great <laughs> I question. I love this. Between 88 and 89, there were two albums that came out that were very seminal as hip-hop was penetrating the mainstream. It takes a nation of millions of soldiers back. I mentioned earlier from Public Enemy, which was from the from New York area. In the L.A. area, uh, straight out of Compton by N.W.A. So both of these albums came out. Both were very, very important. They were landmark in their different ways. Both were counter-hegemonic. Both were anti-authoritarian. Both were subversive. Both were antagonistic to the state. And both talked about that in their uh, their rhymes. Both were sort of grounded in an urban, black male, bad man narrative. But they were opposite, so, meaning that when Public Enemy talked about the police coming after them, they have a song called Black Still in the Hour of Chaos, where they're escaping from prison. But it starts off, I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened it and read it. They said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. But picture me giving a damn. I said never. So the, the beginning of this song is about how he was drafted to fight a war that he didn't believe in, and he was put in jail, like Mama Ali, right? So it starts off with this antagonistic relationship, and he talks about He's a prophet of rage, like mm-hmm. Bessie or Prosser. I have a reason why to debate the hate. That's why we're born to die. Mandela, cell dweller. Thatcher, you can tell her, clear the way for the prophets of rage. He makes reference to Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister, the conservative prime minister of uh, Great Britain. So it's a very political album. It's all about the liberation of black people in a very radical tradition. On the other hand, NWA comes out and they're subversive to the state but for nihilistic criminal reasons that aren't for the advancement of black people. At a moment when you have drive-by shootings in my hometown in South Central LA, reaching record highs and black death and morgues being filled with young black bodies, instead of inveighing against the violence, they lean into it as a sign of their own bravado and coolness, right? That I'm such a bad man that, as Easy e says, F a car, I do a mother effing walk by, right? And then you have this sort of celebration of their ability to be gangsters. And so when they deal with the police, it's like, F the police, not because I'm trying to free black people in the way that Chuck D, when he says the tap on my phone, they won't leave me alone. I'm even lethal when I'm unarmed because I'm louder than a bomb. When they say 
the F the police is like because they're engaged in criminal activity. And mm -hmm. so I explained to my students that many people think the NWA was a sort of pro-black, black radical group. But in addition to their coarse misogyny and the sort of vulgar references to women and girls, there was that same sort of commentary about black life. And their antagonistic relationships to police is sort of what you'd expect from a group that is a criminal organization. And I explained, like, if you were to ask Al Capone or Ted Bundy or Charles Manson what they thought about the police when they were in the middle of their crime sprees, they would have been like, F the police. <laughs> you know, these guys are trying to stop me from killing. So, so, you know, so I think that we need to kind of, like, complicate how NWA has now kind of loomed as this, this, this hip-hop group that's been a conscious, mm. politically all about social justice, which it was not. Mm -hmm. But... So to the last thing here to your listeners, I apologize for being so long-winded. I promise not to be for the next question. <laughs> nope. I'm having you on this podcast every week from now on. So if you look at this period, this time period, Julie, you have a right after NWA and Public Enemy and right after the Grammys and after you have Hip Hop magazines, and then you have SoundScan by early 1990s, around 1990, 1991. They show that you have this penetration to the suburbs. And that majority of consumers of hip-hop by 1991 are white kids, and about 72% or so are white kids, and, and they say suburban white kids, but white kids. You have two MCs that emerge, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, who outsell everyone who's ever been an MC. They outsell Rakim, they outsell Rodney MC, they outsell everybody, right? And there's a huge backlash to these guys. So within the hip-hop community, the magazines actually diss them. Um, the Source famously has the highest rating is five mics. But the one mic, they actually refer to it as get that vanilla ice trash out of here. So they actually <laughs> make, they build that into their measuring stick, right, which is really insulting for vanilla ice. And so they do this. There are videos that other rappers in a group of white rappers Actually, they they diss MC Hammer. So you have X Clan that they would uh, a super conscious black group. They diss v Vanilla Ice, and so in this period, it became very hard for rappers to be just straight party braggadocious rappers like Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. You had to be a bad boy. You had to be an anti authoritarian. You had to be counter hegemonic in some way. So there were two traditions, two examples of it. You had NWA and you had Public Enemy. The NWA line one, right? So being sort of gangster and nihilistic was marketable in a way that being antagonistic to the state and talking about assassinating corrupt racist politicians like Public Enemy did on By the Time I Get to Arizona in this video, they got banned. Gangster rappers uh, really won that battle. And what we have now in mainstream hip hop has been the sort of gangster variety, which traffics in massage in a way that the conscious rap did not, right? So it traffics in the destruction of black life and the drug trade in a way that conscious rap did not. So that's part of it. And you do have MCs that, that veer from that to some extent. And so it's not the only expression, but certainly when it comes to the bad boy style, that's where we get it from. 50 years ago, uh, when hip-hop started, it was a very specific cultural context, right? N not even just New York City, but the Bronx and the South Bronx. And I know that some people who were there will say it was actually the specific park in the South Bronx <laughs> where it all started. But pretty quickly, it spread around the country. And now, I mean, you can listen to hip-hop being made in dozens of languages all over the world. You know, I think about there's an Irish group called Kneecap, and it's young guys who are very anti-establishment. They actually rap in the Irish language, and they get in trouble all the time, and they've cited Ice Cube as, like, their hero. Why do you think hip-hop has been so good at spreading across national boundaries? Why do you think so many people from so many different cultural backgrounds respond to this music? I think there, there's a practical element to how hip-hop spreads. One, it doesn't take a whole bunch of equipment because certainly as technology has advanced, the use of a microphone and doing some drum beats is a pretty easy way. And, and like early rappers, you can just take a musical sample and rap over someone else's production. And so that was, that's an easy way. So I think that made it a lot easier than what we think about with jazz, with all the instruments required, or even rock and roll, or uh, R&B, or other genres. But then also I think there's a, there's a style of hip-hop that the world saw. If we go back to 88, 89, when, when hip-hop spread across the world through UMCV raps and and cable shows and cousins and friends and family members sent mixtapes around. And the, the most dominant expression of hip-hop at this time, the early 90s, you still had conscious rap. And my students have a, have a very hard time 
imagining that the most popular woman in hip-hop at the time, the early 90s, was Queen Latifah, who had a hit song, Ladies First, right? And that men and women were dancing to and listening to, where she has a video, it's a feminist song, where she's celebrating women all around the world engaged in social justice issues, which is crazy. And then you got, like, Fight the Power by Public Enemy, and you're like, 1989, another, another summer, get down. And it's like, it's like such a, it's a banging song, right? It's, as they would say, <laughs> slapping, right? So the song is amazing. And people were in the club with these songs. And then you have songs that weren't always social justice oriented. They were just straight party songs, but you take like Black Sheep, this or that, or the choice is yours. It's like, you can get with this, you can get with that. And they have this, I remember being in clubs where the whole club, when they said engine, engine, yeah, number yeah, yeah. Yeah. on the New York trains a lot. And, and it wasn't about my ability to snuff out your life, right? And it was very <laughs> different. So I think when it, when it went around the world, their first taste of it was party music, it was cool, you had bravado, it was fun, it was sexy. But then when it did get serious, it was really about freeing the people and speaking truth to justice and about celebrating the life of the most oppressed, right, in a society that did not appreciate the life of the most oppressed. And so it was subversive in the best ways. And so it was your coolness, I think, that made it really kind of cool. So I think had their very first taste of hip-hop been something different, I don't know how hip-hop would have emerged, but all around the planet – you've gotten a chance to see hip-hop affect society in different ways. Tupac Shakur famously said that he might not live long enough to see his lyrics incite a revolution, but he believes that somewhere along the line, someone would be inspired and there will be a revolution for the people that Tupac can say that his lyrics help inspire. In the fall of 2010 in Tunisia, there was a rapper named El Hedenral who had lyrics in a song that criticized the corrupt president in that country. And the state came in and arrested this young man. And first, he, they, they put him on house arrest. He refused, in hip-hop tradition, <laughs> he refused to apologize. Yeah. Like Run DMC, like the first, like the first, Heavy D and all these people got nominated back in 1989. And they were like, we're not going to go up there and be humiliated. We're not going to be chucking and jiving for y'all. You come to us or, or we don't do it. And if you look at the rappers in the 1990s who were being attacked for their lyrics, Ice-T didn't apologize. Tupac didn't apologize. Ice Cube didn't apologize. And there were all kind of people in different genres of music and entertainers all the time. Politicians who get called out for saying something impolitic. They always come out and have a press conference and like, you know what, I'm sorry. I was I was <laughs> drinking some Kool-Aid or I had my medication at the same time and all of a sudden I didn't know what was going on. I said these are so but they didn't do hip hop never did this. Mm-hmm. And so El Hanaval, in that tradition, did what everyone else did. And he said, I'm not gonna apologize. Put me on house arrest. They put him on house arrest. They tried to ban his music. Students who were his fans came out and supported El Hanaval. They came out support, and the students went on strike. And as they went on strike, the state came down and arrested these high school kids. High school kids were caught, and Tunisia is a small country, right? So, but but there, they were arrested. They were they got put in these jails. Teachers then came out in sympathy to their high school students, protested, talked about the corruption, about the exploitation of city workers. Lawyers then started coming out. More and more people came out, and his song that the government tried to suppress actually spread through social media. And because it was in Arabic, it spread to all these other languages. And as the protests in Tunisia accelerated, the Tunisian president actually had to flee the country. But across into Egypt, the lyrics from El Hanaral's song spread, and people started talking about Mubarak in Egypt. And people took to the streets in spring of 2011. And then they went to Syria, and they talked about Bashir al-Assad. And people went throughout North Africa and became the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we unfortunately had the civil war in Syria, but Mubarak was disposed. In Tunisia, it was disposed. In Morocco, there were reforms. And so it was such a profound example of the power of music. And when you think about when people say that music has no sort of influence, I mean, there's, there's a very really complicated conversation because I, I think there are ways that hip-hop does and what hip-hop doesn't, or music in general, may or may not influence people. But certainly forcing people to think about certain things and putting a series of events in action, I mean, this is what we see with hip-hop. This is going from way broad global to back to you. I know that since your One Hit Wonder article, as you called it, you've had some personal interactions with some of the kind of the greats in hip hop. Can you share a few of those with us? My very first run in, I have a, a, a really cool story with Chuck D. So I was a big fan of Public Enemy. I love Public Enemy. They were my favorite rap group by the time I was in college. So I love Run DMC and then Jump Up. 
Public Enemy was it. And Public Enemy came to Morehouse. It may have been homecoming weekend or something one year. And I saw Chuck D, whom I just thought was, like, you know, the best thing ever. He was so cool. And I saw him. And he was posted up in Martin Luther King International Chapel with some Morehouse students. And I saw, I was like, oh, my God, that's Chuck D. So I ran over <laughs> to him. And I was like, Chuck D. I tried to give him a handshake. And he looked at me against the wall. And he kind of gave him this nod, like like this clown. Who's this clown coming over here with all this, this erratic energy and everything? And I remember just being so giddy and elated and grinning and everything to see Chuck D. And I, then I saw how he kind of played me. And then I saw the two guys who were next to him who were dudes I knew. And they were looking at me askance as well. Like, they were kind of looking at me like I was a clown. I was like, am I really a clown? They were looking at me like I'm a clown. <laughs> so, but I was mad at those guys because I knew who they were. Yeah. They were acting like they were all extra special. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, all right then. So I walked away. I still love Public Enemy, but I did feel some kind of way that Chuck D did. Yeah. <laughs> Fast forward, I was uh, writing Hip Hop Revolution, and Chuck D gave a talk at Wesleyan University, not far from here. And I drove down to Middletown, and uh, after his talk, I told him I was writing this book. And he said, okay. I said, yo, I met you before. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, here, here, email me at this address. And it was like info at Mr. Chuck <laughs> or something. It was, like, it was like the same address that anybody could get off the street, right? And, it, and I did, and nothing happened. It's just like, I might as well just not send it, right? Yeah. It, just, it was nothing. I was like, oh, this dude dissed me again. <laughs> and so then, fast forward, the book comes out, and I had, at this point, I was a, a tenure faculty member. I got tenure off my first book. Had nothing to do with hip-hop, but I got tenure off the first book. I was head of Africana Studies at the university, uh, giving talks around the world. I was invited to give this talk at a university in Pennsylvania. And Chuck D was also there for this hip-hop conference where I was a a key speaker. And I saw him then for the third time. And lo and behold, of course, he didn't remember any of those times he'd been dissing me all these years. But (laughs) but he saw my book, Hip-Hop Revolution, and he looked at it and said, oh, this is a book that was in the source this month. And I did not know until that moment that the source reviewed my book. That's awesome. And it was Chuck D who told me that That's the source crazy. actually kept oh, my wow. book in the thing. So I thanked Chuck. I took a picture with him. <laughs> I told him how he dissed me all these years. And he said he wouldn't diss me again. He said, oh, were you, were you like real energetic? And I said, yeah. He said, were you like real wild? I was like, yeah. He said, okay, I used to do that to people. So, and, then came, and then he came to UConn. He came to UConn a couple years later oh, and cool. uh, spoke at the African American Cultural Center. I saw him at that point. He remembered me finally at that point. He did remember me. And he made a joke about him dissing me. So, <laughs> so Chuck D and I are almost friends. Full I'm circle, almost, yeah. almost. You mentioned that you had like another story of someone who was not at the time well known. That you met someone who later would become Actually, quite well known. Yes. So the very first rapper that I ever met was probably this is in when I was a college student. I was involved in all sorts of little activities on campus. I was president of the History Majors Club, and some friends were celebrating the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, February 21st, 1990. And they had a number of organizations that were to speak, and I was supposed to speak for the History Majors Club. And they had a, a, a local young rapper who had come out from a group called the New African Panthers. And this young man had connections in Atlanta and was an aspiring rapper. He was rapping, but no album out. And this little dude got up and he, he spit some rhymes and on this little stage in front of, I think it was Merrill Hall on campus. And he spit some rhymes. And I remember coming up to him afterwards. I was like, hey, man, you know, good job, brother. You know, like, you know, it was a good job. I appreciate what you said, you know. And he was, like, very thankful. And I was like, oh, you know, thanks a lot. And it turns out that he looked up to us because we were, like, only two years apart, but we were like big college radical guys, right? We were like the dudes that he wanted to kind of be like. And he's just a rapper, but he has no album out. I'm not even sure he had even a deal, but he certainly had no album out. But we were the older activist radical cats who were talking all this stuff, and this is stuff that he really enjoyed. And I was like, hey, man, so so what's your name? I'll look for your album. He's like, man, Tupac, man, Tupac Shakur. <laughs> You know, look for it. It's going to be hot, man. And so that was 1990. Was it hot? It, it, was, it was the next year, 91, this album came out. But I was it thinking, took a while. But, wow. And, and, and yeah, he, he managed to do well. So yeah, a little bit, well. a little yeah, bit. So that was my one interaction with, with Tupac. That is wild. Well... This has been amazing. We can keep you here for another hour I know, and a half, we talk I think. Forever. I literally could have you back weekly to talk about this. It's <laughs> fascinating it's a lot, a lot to of me. Fun. It's yeah. really cool that you get to 
spend your life. I know you do a lot of other things, but you get to spend your life talking about this. You have a new book coming out very soon. It's not about hip hop, but tell us a little about that. Yep. In a nutshell, the title is America's Black Capital, How African-Americans Remade Atlanta in the Shadow of the Confederacy. And it's a history of Atlanta from its antebellum origins really up to today. And I look at the extent to which the Confederacy implanted upon the social, political, cultural framework of the city and how African-Americans navigated that world and created what is, in 2023, a city with the highest concentration of black-owned businesses, highest concentration of black millionaires, African-Americans are overrepresented in the city government, police, fire department, teachers, 75% of teachers are black in a city that is roughly half black now. And it is really a remarkable tale of how the improbable rise of what is popularly known as the Black Mecca. But one would have imagined that Atlanta, of all places, which was one of the final possible capitals for the Confederacy during the Civil War. And then it was the capital of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Mm. It was the imperial city for the Ku Klux Klan. But it's become the city today. So it's really a history of that and a lot of fascinating characters. I really enjoyed writing this book. Great. Almost nine years of work in that book. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We're looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Julie and Tom. I appreciate it. That was great. And, and our thanks to uh, Professor Ogbar for being so accommodating. Very accommodating, uh, Professor Ogbar was. And just a great conversation. We might actually do a part two at some point. Yeah, even though that was probably one of the longest yes. <laughs> interviews we've done. We we talked a little bit after we recorded that because my husband sent me a podcast. It was originally on a podcast called Into It, and then I think it was shared on another big podcast feed, but it's called Hip Hop is 50 and it's having a midlife crisis. So there was a journalist from Vulture who was talking about some of the not-so-savory parts of hip hop, you know, some of the misogyny, all of those things, and also how a lot of the greats in hip-hop are kind of sellouts in a way. So I thought it was interesting because we we were kind of falling in the camp of what this guy was talking about. All the coverage was really fawning of hip-hop because a lot of people really love hip-hop and right. it's, it's a huge cultural movement. But it was really interesting to hear they had some academics talking about some of the negatives. And when I brought this up to Professor Ogbar in an email, he said he would love to do a part two, like you mentioned. So stay tuned for that. Maybe we'll check that out in the 51st year of hip-hop. We'll be able to do the other side of hip-hop and talking about some of those different cultural things. Yeah, absolutely. And it was just a great conversation. We it had was a lot awesome. of fun. So we we could have talked to him for hours. Frankly. We really could have. Yeah, it was tough to cut it off. But yeah, so yeah, maybe we'll have a part two at some point. And as we're looking back 50 years of hip-hop, mm-hmm. I think it's it's also fun to look back into the history of UConn. That was yeah. a terrible segue. That was really, it's always a I just got off a plane segue. shortly. I'm sorry. I go, I'm tired. <laughs> but this was an interesting, from 44 years ago, the fall of 1979, okay. this is an interesting issue that I think is once again relevant, okay. which was a university-wide effort to conserve energy. Oh, very timely. In the face of the energy crisis, which was happening at the time. For those of you who don't know about it, or maybe you're too young to remember, which I would assume is most people listening to this. <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> In the 1970s, because of oil production, there was a sort of nationwide energy crisis. And, you know, the lasting images of that were cars Gas lined up lines, around the block yeah. to fill, you know, the tanks. And, you know, President Jimmy Carter, like, addressing the nation while wearing a cardigan was like, you know, put on a sweater, turn down the thermostat. <laughs> in fact, he, he prescribed that thermostats in buildings should all be set at 65. Oh, a little, little nippy. That's what UConn did. All thermostats in buildings on campus, except residential halls, mm. had to be at 65. Wow. And in buildings that didn't have people living in them. They just turned everything off after 5 p.m. And there were each building on the front door had an energy monitor posted. So like somebody who worked in the building was the energy monitor. Really? And they were responsible for, first of all, like communicating with physical plants saying like, hey, it's too cold. Yeah. Or saying, hey, we've got a broken window or this radiator isn't working. So there was every building had someone designated to essentially be the liaison to physical plant about the, the temperature issue. And there are a few other things, too. The university created a ride-sharing program to help save on gas. And in fact, my father, who worked here in the 70s, participated in the carpooling with other faculty members who lived in Manchester at the time, and they actually became friends after that. So I grew up knowing them as, like, friends of the family, and I had no idea it was because until later. It was because they were forced to ride Yeah, they were carpooling together. (laughs) That's awesome, though. Yeah. That's great. And the effort in the fall semester of 1979 in December, President John DiBiagio said that it saved the university close to $70,000 hmm. that fall, which was a lot of money back then. Yep. It was 1979 money. Yep. 
and that the university was able to cut its energy use by 10% over the, the previous fall semester. Wow. And there was also a lot of research being done into clean energy starting at that time. Yeah. UConn had something called the Solar Energy Evaluation Center, which was on the roof of Engineering 2. Mm-hmm. It was one of the only centers in the country that could evaluate all different types of solar equipment. Oh, cool. And, in fact... It was the center that evaluated and approved the solar panels that went on the roof of the White House. I was going to mention, we just had this big advertising package and uh, story about the century of clean energy at UConn and in the state of Connecticut. And that was a big one. Jimmy Carter's White House was on that article. Yeah. Yeah. And it was I was reading about this in the predecessor of UConn today at the time. And it was the University Chronicle. It was called the time. It was a, a newspaper that came out once a week. Can you imagine that, folks? <laughs> It was pretty interesting because it was – I think the coverage was maybe a little bit more straight – maybe – I don't know. I want to say the right word. But like they quoted people who were mad about this at oh. UConn saying like it's too cold. I, okay. want, I want it to be warmer in the building. And then the head of the physical plant, whose name was Norman Cutts at the time, just said like I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the president said we Yeah, the rules are the rules. The U.S. president. He basically said like get used to it. Yeah. Well, I mean – Sometimes buildings are cold. As a woman, we we deal with this. Lots of sweaters and... Sometimes buildings are very hot. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the flip side. That is the flip side, yeah. (laughs) We had had an issue in our building earlier this year where it was really, really hot. You know, September. For some reason, the heat was on and they couldn't turn it off and it was... It was rough. Yeah. Tom and I were here that day. We had yeah. a bad day that day. Yeah. It was a bad day. <laughs> it was a dark day in the university <laughs> history. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a lot of research. People are not at their best when the temperature is too it's high. It's very true. It makes you very cranky. I will say that there was a huge like national effort to do more of this stuff in the 70s because of the yes. energy crisis. Yes. But then, in the not to get political, but in the 80s, there was a change in administration. Mm-hmm. And also, there was a lot more expansion of um, oil drilling in the mm-hmm. U.S. There was sort of an oil boom in the Southwest. And so suddenly, there was no more energy crunch. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff got abandoned. So, like, the solar panels came off the White House. Right. And a lot of the federal money that had been going towards research dried up. And a lot of people moved on. Businesses stopped caring about this stuff. And so it, I feel like we really lost. It's been tough to get back to it, yeah. Yeah, in the last 10 or 15 years, I think we've made a lot of progress. Certainly, we're doing a lot at UConn. But I feel like as a country, yes. we kind of like lost 25 years where yeah, we could have really. we could have made an impact. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. So food for thought from the 70s. We're doing a lot today. We are not asking people to carpool. No. Uh, but maybe that'd be a fun way for folks on campus to meet a stranger. <laughs> Strangers. Just make sure you vet the strangers. Strangers first. are only friends you haven't met yet. Exactly. Good uh, advice. Good um, nugget. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it for us. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening as always. Thanks to Professor Ogbar. Uh, you can read more about Professor Ogbar in the magazine. Is that correct, Julie? Yes, there's a really fun thing he did for us. So the magazine does something called Three Books in most issues where a professor or someone on campus will talk about a book they're reading, a book they just read, a book they're looking forward to, cool way to get to know them. And he did three albums. So three hip-hop albums, an essential, a favorite, and a classic. Very cool. Yeah, check it out, magazine.ucon.edu. And if for some reason you want to follow us on the dying social media platform called X. You can follow us at UConn Podcast. I didn't even tweet the last episode on there. Or <laughs> tweet, post. It's it's it's. I mean, it is. It's a sad state of affairs over there. The but, longest episode we've ever. I know. Had. Seven hours. Get seven, ready. Buckle in, folks. Seven hours. Yeah. If you're listening to this, thank you for making it all this way. You've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.